This morning's reading is taken from Genesis chapter 3, and you'll find this on page 5 of the Church church Bibles. The Fall of Man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life.
we began our series about six weeks ago, and I posed this question. If you were given a piece of paper and you were posed two questions, how and uh, which way would you reply? Man is essentially good. Or man is intrinsically evil. Right. How would you write? I guess it might depend on your circumstances. If you were living in Cumbria today and a member of the bird family, you might be in a dilemma because it's very subjective. Of course, the truth is there's a bit of both invariably. What we come to this morning is a part of the Bible that I, suppose, I suspect we could say is the most uh, controversial um, the most widely debated part of Genesis, possibly the whole of the Old Testament. Is the paradise fall, the paradise fall, is it an allegory? Is it just an illustration? Is it mythology? Is it symbolic? Or, as I want to suggest to you this morning, is it historic and did this literally happen? Well, there you are. That would take several um, GCSEs and A-level questions, wouldn't it? I hope, at the very least, you'll hear me out before you think I'm being naive in saying that this is historic and literal. If we were to take time, and we will briefly, to put Genesis 1 to 3, and particularly chapter 3, into the rest of the Old and New Testament alone, you will see how that it's referred to, how Jesus himself makes reference to it, and he had no problem with seeing it in its literal sense, and of course, its literal consequences. From chapter 3 and verse 1, for example, in, in our reading, we have this idea of the serpent as an instrument of Satan, or indeed Satan himself in, in a guise that is to tempt and turn man to rebel against God. Now, it would take lots of sermons to get into all the issues, and you'll forgive me for broad brushstrokes. You can't just think that this was a one-off event, that it may well be cumulative, a whole series of innuendos, half-truths, and so forth. So the aftermath of this failure, as we have in Genesis 3, poses a question. The question oftentimes people ask in discussion is this. Did he jump or was he pushed? In other words, think about ourselves for a moment. Do I actually have anybody to blame but myself for my imperfection and the sin that I commit? Well, of course, our society comes up with so many I know it's a, it's a tough question. We're all products of all sorts of things. External factors which affect our behavior, 
tiredness, background, our chemistry, our hormones, our parents, our genes, the world, and all these multiple factors. It is very interesting in all the discussion and the interviews with the media this past week, nobody has ever even raised the issue on two grounds. Where is God? And where is the devil? One interviewer said, the only person who really knows why this happened is the man who's killed himself. From our perspective, there are other answers. Making sense of all this is difficult. Making sense of our own behavior personally because we've developed a knack, an ability to justify our wrong behavior and live quite comfortably with it as long as we blame other people. Assumptions can be dangerous and they can be humorous. I read this past week a fascinating example of assumption. Come with me to an airport, a businesswoman. She's between two flights and there's a delay of about an hour and a half. So she buys a newspaper and a packet of biscuits. Feeling a little bit peckish, she sat up by the table, opened the paper and started to eat her biscuits. To her surprise, a very cultured businessman working on his laptop opposite her started to eat her biscuits. <laughs> now, being a very polite lady and not wanting to make a fuss, she looks over her newspaper and puts her arm on it pulls the biscuits towards her side and doesn't say anything. Takes another biscuit. And then the rustling of the cellophane again and she's feeling this is very strange. But she doesn't say anything, being British, of course. <laughs> Finally, the packet of biscuits have come right to the bottom and there's one left. This businessman takes the last biscuit, breaks it in half and pushes the packet back to her with half a biscuit. By which time she is furious. I mean, what sort of behaviour is that? Well, the flight was called, the man goes to his destiny and in the course of time, the woman eats her last biscuit and she's still feeling a sense of rage and injustice that this should ever happen. So she finally goes to uh, the boarding gate and gets her ticket. And as she gets a ticket from her handbag, to her amazement, inside is her packet of biscuits. It's good, isn't it? And somewhere in that airport is a man wa waving his head with utter astonishment, thinking about, who is this crazy woman? <laughs> Assumptions can, yes, can be rather dangerous, can't they? And we make them all the time. So that's okay, but others might get us into more difficulty. Assumptions. 
So what I'd like to do with Genesis 3 and try to get us to stand back from our prejudices, our assumptions, and all the impact of school and cynicism whereby creationism and some of its exponents, though they haven't helped, has now been reduced to the margins of education indeed, if anybody would give serious thought to it at all. So what do we make of Genesis chapter 3? We are living in a messed up world. That's our heading. And we look at it under three quick headings. The first is this, and there is a progression in three of these uh, headings. The first is this, there's the denial of the word of God. And it's a very subtle denial. You see that in verses 1 to 5, where it's a rhetorical question. Has God said, has he? Not very sure. And the serpent starts this process of casting doubt, of sowing seeds of half-truths and innuendo. He is, as it's been referred to in other places, economical with the truth. And what does he do? Well, he questions God's motive. God's motive. And how often... When you think of young people and think of lives and relationships, how often have people looked at God, Christian people, who say that they love Jesus, look at God as selfish. God is a killjoy, a cosmic spoil sport. He spoils the fun. God is selfish. He wants to stop your pleasure. Even though in chapter 2 we saw that God blessed Adam and said enjoy the pleasure of creation. People say that God is against sex. Even though it is his gift to all mankind. And so a series of lies begin to build up. And over a period of time, we begin to think that God is there to stop our full potential and to spoil our pleasure. The key issue is the same today, that God is a spoilsport, and I'd rather not have anything to do with him. So the denial of the goodness of God creates a whole lifestyle, much of which is in reaction and often in rebellion to God. I wonder if you would take this one line as a sentence, that the denial of the goodness of God is at the root of much of our problems. The root of much, not all, of our problems today. We believe the lie, and in a way we almost live out the lie. And it's this. I know best. I know best. Of course, if I get unstuck, I'll have lots of things, lots of people to blame and to criticize. But essentially, I know best. And you can't help but get this from the opening verses in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And in verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the, to the woman. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The second thing that we have here, stay with the progression. If there's a denial of God's word, of what God says, then you get a consequence. And it's this. There's a denial of relationship. If we are cut off from him, it is going to impact the way that we relate to each other. To be cut off from God is to have consequences in the way we relate to each other. And so verses 6 and 10, throughout this story, this second consequence is spelt out like this. God's created order is reversed. So you see, look, man is meant to rule over the animal world. And now the animal kingdom begins to usurp him. Look in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, having both eaten. The Lord walking in the garden. Now, this is very strong but picture. Anthropomorphic language. Human language. I'm not sure if God has hands and legs in the way that we understand that. God's presence there. And there's this whole dialogue that comes out of it. Man is to rule. And the rule is reversed. The animal world is hostile. The animal rises to deceive. Come to the woman. This interpersonal relationship in chapter 2 and verse 18, the woman is to be a helper. And it's the highest Pinnacle of being a helper, God-like for the man. Now becomes a hindrance. And so, verses 6 to 7, this balanced relationship is fractured by disobedience. And broken relationships is the stuff that preoccupies people for the rest of time. Broken relationships with the, with the Creator and now broken relationships with His creation. We posed the question last Sunday, what makes you and I who we are? And our answer was people. But what are people makings? For good or for ill? A denial of relationship. And we're going to spend a little more time on this third, and this, this is where it's the more application, is a denial of personal responsibility. So the rest of the chapter, verses 11 to 24, so begins, and we know about it from our own experience, so begins a catalogue of what we call passing the buck. You see in verse 11, the Lord asks the question and the reply is given and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, this is very interesting, just stay with this. The man said, right, the woman you put here, two things, very clever. 
And man has been doing this. That in two directions, he says, it's not my fault. The woman, you give. You did it. And people have been belligerent towards God ever since. The woman, you give. She did it. And with one sentence in two directions, it's God's fault. It's the woman's fault. She gave me the fruit. And we all know, do we not, from personal experience, either ourselves or people doing it to us, how subtle this is. And the danger is, of course, that we can go through life never facing ourselves, always blaming others, always blaming others. One of the lovely things about repentance, metanoia, is this, that there's a turning around and a facing ourselves as well as facing God. The great gift of God is repentance whereby we don't just simply start again and hope it'll be all right, but we face ourselves, we face our Creator, and we relate much more deeply. The woman you gave me. I couldn't help but think that when I was preparing this, you know that familiar account where Jesus gives of a father with two sons. A rebellious son, he goes away and lives riotously. And then he comes back, we call it the prodigal son. When he comes back, the same spirit that Jesus detects in the elder brother is here. And the way he does it, this brother of yours is not mine. You see, the woman you gave, it's the same spirit. Perhaps that broke the father's heart more than the wild living of the prodigal, the person who refuses to face issues in life. Temptation's a funny thing. Uh, I meant to bring it today and I forgot, but um, I've had in front of me all the week a cigar in a case. It's been in my drawer for 10 years, I was surprised. It was given to me after taking a wedding in Spain, because there's a tradition at weddings, all the men are given a cigar. The reason I know this, the inscription of the bride and groom is cased on this beautiful Havana cigar. I'd not noticed that it'd been there ten years. But if, let's suppose, I really, really like cigars with a glass of port, I would look at that, wouldn't I, and I'd say, it's time you came out of that box. But it's no temptation to me whatsoever. It could be there another ten years. It wouldn't touch me. If, however, you were predisposed to enjoy a nice Havana cigar, I doubt whether it would be in the draw for ten years, ten months, ten weeks. Temptation is relative to how you are drawn to it. So you might see one person who's quite strong in that area, but another person weak in another area. And the whole point of having relationships is that the weak and the strong actually help each other. Unless, of course, you come to church simply to pretend that all is well, when inside your life's falling apart. 
Temptation is a, is a very strange thing to live with, and we all live with it in varying degrees. Many friends lay broken and shattered on the rocks of the temptation of gossip and exaggeration, of which the Bible speaks much more than, as we shall come in a moment, to the whole sexuality issue. And floating face down beneath the coral reefs of popularity and washed up beneath our leaders, priests, pastors, parents, executives, politicians who have veered off course from following God because of inappropriate gossip. That's a big temptation, isn't it? So we mustn't only think of the obvious forbidden things, but the apparent lesser things seem to be more important to God, and we've got to say, I've got to stop passing the buck. I've got to really say, not my brother, not my sister, it's me, it's me, O Lord, me standing in the need of prayer. So let's try to round this off then. When Jesus was speaking to his opponents in his day, and I think it came up earlier on, and I'll just read it to you in John chapter 8 and verse 44, he said something quite startling to them. Very religious people they were. And he said this, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar from the beginning. And it seems as if before you get to murder, that lie is, a, is, is the prelude to that. And temptation for us in a world, a very grey world of half-truths, and we're drawn into it so often. There is, of course, a tension between our choice, the choice that we make, and prevailing circumstances. And we've mentioned the issue of our upbringing. And we might know of some people, you might think that you're in this category, who've had a bad start in life. The older we get, the more we realize how influential our parents were in shaping our thinking and relating and so forth. I have a very good friend who when he was brought up and he's a lot older than me that his father said to him whatever you do never say sorry. Can you imagine that? Never. Sorry is a sign of weakness. Never, ever. And that was drummed into him and he, all his life good Christian though he is has struggled with that. Of course these things impact us. Some children deserve better parents as well. Parents deserve better children. We know all of that. And we are victims of all sorts of things. Maybe our own fault or other factors. But nevertheless, one of the things about coming face to face with God Almighty is that we face our responsibility. So there are upbringing, environment, temperament, the government, politicians... Think of this instance this past week, Mr. Derek Bird. 
Just, I wonder, think of his mother. Lost twin sons. Just out of her. We're not sure. Uh, a sense of injustice or unfairness that begins to eat away at him. That a normal person, what do we mean by normal, can do such abnormal evil taking innocent lives. All of this is true. What we face here in Genesis 3 is that I am responsible. And only true repentance makes me really face positively. So let's conclude. Back to Adam and Eve and the final question. Well, what was their sin? What was it? Well, can we put it in a negative way first of all? It wasn't the apple. So much mythology has developed over that. Artists and poets and so forth. Can I say this? That it is important to affirm that the forbidden fruit was not some arbitrary choice on God's part. God being difficult. It was not as if he decided on a whim that apples are out of bounds but oranges and bananas are okay. How absurd is that? So if it wasn't the apple, what was it? Secondly, it wasn't sex. Because God gave both these. Somebody has said, if it wasn't the apple on the tree, then it was the pear on the ground, you know, that sort of thing. But it wasn't that. No, no. It wasn't that either. Their sin is more than a simple momentary lapse in their obedience. But it was an act of rebellion against God. It isn't simply breaking the rules, for we all do it. It is defiance. It is rebellion against God that now we are at enmity with him. And that is our nature. Sin is revolution. It is a denial that God is good. And it is living as if he wants to stop our pleasure. And if we keep swallowing that lie, then our relationships are going to be fractured even more. And our responsibility of facing ourselves, and how liberating is that, so that we go through life, people who are free from our own prejudices that seem to dominate our lives. And the same Lord Jesus who said to the people of his day about the lie of the devil said, but you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The essence of their sin is that they are in rebellion to God. And the only way that can change 
is that through Jesus Christ and that first reference, the seed of the man shall, of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. The beginning, even there, of the promise of a redeemer, of a saviour, of the Messiah, who would come and to be both God and man and heal the rift of broken relationships. And I think that is why whatever else we try to do when it comes to Genesis 3 and talk and work it through, that what we see here is that we should have a reversal of that. We should believe God's word. We should be receptive to human relationships and God relationships. And we should face ourselves and face our responsibilities and know his blessing.